Hey everybody, welcome back to Terminus, the Ori and the Blind Forest of Extreme Metal Podcasts. I am the Death Metal Guy, a.k.a. Very Authentic Gore Grind Band, referred to as Boner Fried. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a dad joke, Juan. I thought that was, yeah, I thought yeah, that was cute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who says you can't be metal and a dad? <laughs> no way, dude. That's the thing, man. I'm like, yeah. I'm like a real metalhead, but I'm also a fucking dad, and that's cool. I got a, a toddler size Monomarth shirt, <laughs> and, and I'm wearing and it I am myself. The bl- <laughs> <laughs> and I am the black metal guy, aka the 2006 record "Cause of Fortior" by Eschaton is pretty good. It, it, that is a pretty good record, you know. That's that's kind of like uh, that's kind of like that one uh, that I brought up on the show a while back that you ended up getting into uh, the Sarcophagus that band. Yeah, yeah. I was actually I was thinking the other day. I had the thought. I was about to go out to the bar and I was thinking I want to listen to Eschaton. And then I, I didn't actually have time, but I was also thinking, oh yeah, remember that band Sarcophagus? Because they're kind of like the updated version of Eschaton. It's like. Greek Senor Voland and Immortal. Yeah, and and just like yeah. and fast and big, you know. Fast it, and big, yeah. You know, it's like, I, I've got a real special place in my heart. You know, that's part of a series of black metal albums that are like pretty good that I probably listen to more than actual great black metal albums. No, I know what you mean. It's just a go for or a, a, just a go to. You know, it's it seems like it's a Greek specialty, right? Think also about like heroes. Right? A hero is never like the sandwich, I mean. They're never like <laughs> great. They're just, they're pretty good. Yeah. It's yeah, reliable. There, there's, there's something special to being pretty good. You know, like greatness demands a lot of effort from a listener, you know, but being pretty good, you know, I can listen to that in the car and I, I do a lot of driving. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's got utility to me. All uh, right. So, are we going to have to, are we going to shill now? Yeah, we should chill. The boys are back in town, so don't you mess around. But of course, upfront housekeeping. Me, Death Metal Guy, Facebook, at Terminus Podcast. You, Black Metal Guy, Instagram, at Terminus Extreme Metal. Money, give it to us. Patreon, $3, bonus episodes, $5, Discord access. Let's get her done. This is a little one, Gash, and you're listening to Terminus. And we are back with the first of two records tonight. This is Inquisition's Veneration of Medieval Mysticism and Cosmological Violence out on Agonia Records. So it's been um, a couple years since an Inquisition record. We, We did one pretty, I guess not that early in the show, sort of, uh, Oh, wait, it was really early in the show. It was 2020. Yeah, it was toward the end of the year, though, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Black Mass for a Mass Grave was the last one that's come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's actually been kind of a minute, um, although there was an even longer interval before that one. Uh, or, or actually, no, not, not really. They, they've been coming out on a pretty reliable four-year spacing. Um, and the... Uh, the last one was probably the most polished Inquisition record ever. Right? I think we could agree on that. Uh, and it was it was long. It had a sort of a uh, uh, sort of glossy and smooth guitar tone, and it had 
And although it, it did have some moments of sort of like pummeling double bass groove and stuff, it was much more focused on uh, these openings in the songs where uh, Dagon would venture off into kind of 70s prog guitar explorations. Or maybe, I mean, Dagon always only sounds like himself, right? But maybe long, winding, exploratory guitar passages that are like his inquisitionized version of 70s uh, guitar heroics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let's see, I remember you liking that one pretty well. I liked it maybe a little less, but I also liked it because it's an Inquisition record. Yeah, um, very, very consistent band. Yes, we won't be, we're not, you all know that, we're not saying anything smart there. Everyone knows Inquisition is a radically consistent band. Um, he has developed a uh, a very um, a minimalist arsenal of songwriting techniques that he deploys again and again in different iterations. Always manages to change it up just enough. I feel like the only record that was really a departure somehow I've like never gone back to the 2016 to Bloodshed Across the Imperian Altar. That 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 one was it was like a little more death metally I think, which was potentially interesting, but. I guess I think maybe there's enough death metal in the basic Inquisition formula that it wasn't really a very interesting exercise. Yeah, I'm not even sure I've ever even heard that one myself. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, plus the title's a real fucking mouthful. Bloodshed Across the Empyrean Altar Beyond the Celestial Zenith, right? Yeah. Something across the something across the something. Contrast (laughs) that with this title, which is a mouthful but means something. (laughs) Venerate. Veneration of medieval mysticism and cosmological violence. That, if at least if you're used to reading metal song titles, that one rolls off the tongue. Um, and it's got kind of a cool... Uh, and really the title tells you what's going on in this record. Uh, it is a de- The title is a definition of black metal, almost. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, what is black... Hey, what's black metal about? Well, I mean, you could... You know, you can go for the one word Satan, you know, or whatever. But if you want to say it, oh, veneration of medieval mysticism and cosmological violence. Uh, and there's something a little counterintuitive there, right? Because the... You're saying veneration of... Like, say, cosmological violence is a sort of abstract poetic phrasing, right? What does that mean, right? Uh, but there's a clue sort of in the sequencing of the phrase. You've got a V, an M, an M, and a V, which is, in poetic terms, that's a chias- chiasmus. Uh, it's sort of like if you, you, you the first two things and you put the... If you take the first two things and you take the second two things and put them below the first two things, they make kind of an X, Um, V-M-V-M or sorry V-M-M-V and so if you undo that chiastic knot you get something like this veneration of medieval violence and cosmological mysticism that is less weird sounding that just really is a literal definition of black metal what, what do you do it's like medieval violence wasn't like oppressive you know Everyone says medieval violence was this the ultimate evil, awful thing. Medieval violence is cool. Uh, what what do you think? Like, uh, and that that is inframed within this broader uh, cosmological perspective in which these things make sense, right? 
Uh, so there's this co- medieval violence of cosmological mysticism. You can hear both sides of it on any of the early Norwegian records, um, especially, you know, my go-to, the early emperor stuff. Um, and, uh, and, and instantly there's an effort to capture both sides of the music, right? Any record can skew towards one side of the spectrum or the other. But, you know, if you've got your medieval violence and cosmological mysticism, um, you know, uh, these things sort of pass over into one another. Uh, and each one of these sides of the music sort of contains its opposite. Uh, and by, by the chiastic phrasing, by tangling them up in that way, Dagon has really made that clear. So, you know, instead of medieval violence, it's medieval mysticism. And then it's cosmological violence, right? What does it mean to think about a violent cosmos? Uh, so you have, you know, from the, from the very beginning, he's attentive to the sort of the, the two extremes, the two poles of black metal as an idea you get and how they interact with and interpenetrate with another. You've got your telluric versus your celestial, right? You, that's your hev- earthly versus your heavenly, destructive versus generative, grim versus ecstatic. Uh, and he's found ways of embodying this in the music too. In a, you know, all black metal embodies it in the music, but he, he's embodying it in the music in a very deliberate and, uh, um, and in a concerted way, I feel like he's working to bring out this two-sided quality of the music. And I've, I've got some thoughts on that later. But um, it's a cool record. I like this one a lot better than the last one. What do you think? Uh, I like this one a lot. Um, I think that from everything I've heard of Inquisition, they've probably never put anything out that's under like an 8 out of 10 in general. Um You've got a lot of sort of abstract philosophical thoughts about it. I'm just going to concentrate on just sort of musical stuff that I find interesting. So this isn't my favorite Inquisition record because I have a theory that Inquisition and bands like it, bands with like hyper consistent discographies, generally your favorite album by them is the first one you heard in full. Um, so for me, I actually got into Inquisition late with um, Ominous Doctrines back in... Uh, oh, no, it wasn't Ominous Doctrines. It was Obscure Verses in 2013. Uh, because I sort Same, of... Same, actually. Yeah. So I had heard bits of Inquisition before, and it seemed all right, but it didn't really grab me. But then I ended up randomly seeing them live, and I my buddy picked up a copy of this CD at the show, and we ended up listening to it a ton, and we were really into it. Um Seeing them live is a really cool experience. Uh, it's amazing how full it sounds, even you know without all the multi-tracking that the recordings allow. Um, so, because I think that with bands like Inquisition, you know, the first thing you hear from them, it's like that's the thing that holds the most novelty, you know. And then what you're going to be hearing apart from that is variations on a theme, which is totally fine. And I think that it's cool. And I think that metal bands in general should sort of be like that. Um, but the variations are what make up the distinctions between the albums. And this one's actually pretty different in substantial ways. Um, I think at this point, it's become clear, at least to me, that Inquisition is primarily a vehicle for Dagon's particular fascinations at any given time with different guitar techniques. Um, 
the way I perceive Inquisition seems to be a little bit different from a lot of people because a lot of people emphasize what they say that, you know, that it's very sort of deliberately primitive and simple music. And I guess in some sense, maybe it is, but there's a lot of really complex guitar playing that goes on in Inquisition records and a lot of interesting textures and layering. This is not easy stuff to write or to wrap your head around as a guitarist. And I think that Dagon is a guy who takes playing guitar very seriously. And one of the things that makes Inquisition so distinct and makes them a sort of, you know, adjunct to the whole outlaw rock thing is the fact that Dagon is sort of spiritually a rock guitarist you know, rooted in, like, hard rock of the 70s and 80s. And he likes to play around with those ideas in a black metal context. I think the fact that Inquisition is a black metal band is almost happenstance. That's just what comes out when Dagon plays guitar. You know, I don't know how how fixated he is on Inquisition being a black metal band, which allows him a lot of room to maneuver in terms of what uh, what he can do on guitar on any given record. So I think every Inquisition record can be, in a sense, defined by what are the extra influences? Where is Dagon's head at on guitar for a particular record? So last one, there was a lot of 70s prog. Um, my favorite obscure verses is very, it's particularly spacey and, you know, has an almost sci-fi tinge to it sometimes. And it's very like, I, I mean, I guess all of it is heavy metal, but like... That one has a very, um, I think that one was where the most decisive shift happened from this kind of ascetic minimalism to, uh, Inquisition as a, uh, as this sort of band that works with a, a somewhat bigger palette and explores all this range of guitar technique. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that, that track, that record just has, it has a great the production had gotten nicer and nicer on the two previous records, and he'd used some more sort of increasing reliance on the guitar texture stuff. But, like, Obscure Verses for the Multiverse is just where he has um, just undeniable, awesome, big, barreling heavy metal guitar stuff. It's like a headbanging record. Oh, yeah. Record. In, in version yeah. of White Ethereal Stars off that one is like, that's my fucking track. Yeah. What a banger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, so so what is the distinguishing feature on the new one? Well, it's a couple things. And I think the big influences here, you know, outside of the regular palette are post-punk and goth stuff, which comes out like very clearly on this. And did a little bit on the last record. And, you know, there's always a sense of Inquisition being a little bit gothic, way deep down there, but it really comes out very openly on some of these tracks. And two is um, sort of big 80s arena rock. Um, there's a ton of uh, super bluesy and yet still very bombastic, almost like 80s AOR stuff. Um and it comes out in, in ways that I think are probably directly referential to, like, uh, glam rock hits of the early 80s. Um, and the thing is, Dagon is just such a sophisticated guitarist and such a natural songwriter that he's able to incorporate these things in ways that are bracing and really catch the ear and make you think, well, what the fuck is he doing now? But also work perfectly within the overall uh, concept of the music. And it's crazy that 
at one point in this record, I believe he directly references um, Wanted Dead or Alive by Bon Jovi. And it feels completely contiguous within the same, like, satanic mysticism of the rest of the record. <laughs> it's like, it's super charming. It seems like he, I, I think at this point in his career, he's just, like, playing around a lot. He takes the music very seriously, but he's also a guy that always sound checks with Back in Black when he's playing live. Oh, sick. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a... I mean, we know, we've talked about this on the show before, that Inquisition is extremely ACDC. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, and he he has a genuine love. He's a guy that takes ACDC very seriously and black metal very seriously. He stuck his two big loves together, and you got a great band out of it. Yeah. So, um, wh- one thing what wh- we both really g- I had heard some of the earlier stuff um, before Ominous Doctrine or before uh, Ominous Doc or I'm sorry, but. Um, well, I, I would say obscure verses. I would but, say um, ominous doctrines is sort of the pivot point. You know, it's like that's the okay, one that ominous. I remember really blowing up and making a uh, making Inquisition a bigger band than just like a pure like underground black metal weirdo but, thing. But us, because we're always sort of uh, behind the times, we we got in with obscure verses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just remember um, ominous doctrines really popping off. Yeah, no, it it really did. I I think um, so. The, I guess what I was going to say is, even though we both got into it around the sort of middle, I guess, of the career, um, I, I worked backwards, and now what I really love are the first three records. Mm-hmm. The later stuff is also awesome, don't get me wrong. Um, uh, but the, you know, the, the just, the rabid intensity of the first three records and the way that the riffs are structured around this... Um, you know, we, we cellular riffing with just a handful of chords per riff uh, that are just repeated in this frenzied way. Um, really cool. Big mosh parts. Really cool. Um, uh, and a uh, um, very physical music while also being sort of trance-inducing and sort of spacey. Mm-hmm. Uh, um that to me is the core of the sound, um, and there's tons of ACDC back there too. Uh, but um, one thing that I didn't like as much about the last record was it was very much a step away from that framework. Mm-hmm. And really, I think the one before it too, "Bloodshed Across the Imperial Altar." I can't even really remember how that one sounded, but it was did not have the classic sort of um, cleanly spaced eighth and sixteenth note blast beats that were the bed of the Inquisition sound. They were not as prominent. Mm-hmm. Um, Veneration of Medieval Mysticism, this new one, sort of really, at least through at least through the middle of the album, and frequently on the latter part of it too, um, is, it, it, it is a much more prominent role for the sort of percussive assault, both of the, the drums, which are cranked up really loud, and... Uh, the guitar tone is a lot more intense too, um, and uh, so so I like that 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 return to the sort of the uh, the feverish intensity. Um, and I wanted to sample I wanted to sample the second track, "Crown of Light and Constellations," because uh, this is a good exhibit of the the broader point I'm trying to make about his. Uh, the two sides of the music and their interaction. Um, 
listen to this and you'll immediately hear the greater aggression um, and this, or the sort of, or if you didn't listen to the last one, the classic Inquisition aggression, but you'll also hear other stuff going on. Um, there's like two levels to the music. You have that classic Inquisition attack and then over it you have what we could generally call the spacey stuff, which as you've said on this record is very influenced by goth and probably, and also by sort of the usual hard rock stuff. Um, and listen to how those two levels are interacting and to the extreme difference between them. the end you got almost like a simple man riff um like a, a leonard skinner riff uh mm-hmm. but the um but what happens is uh the spacey stuff comes to the front right but in in the earlier material you have this this basically this wall of blasting uh with some low-end guitar stuff and then over top of it you have that dun 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 Dun, 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 dun. Uh, and yeah, you're right. I think goth is a good uh, good reference point for that. Um, and it sounds like the most ethereal stuff, right? Pushing towards like dead can dance, right? Or dark wave. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or even like dungeon synth. The, the previous track, Witchcraft Within a Gothic Tomb, almost had a, a dungeon synth mood to it. Uh, but the guitar playing is very gothy. Um, basically like whimsical kind of playful medieval melodies um, and uh, and but totally simultaneous with the classic Inquisition uh, 
Inquisition sort of cellular riffing attack, right? And and broken up by sort of uh, thrash riff, um, and uh, and the interesting thing about uh, is how well he sustains these two layers. Um, the at the at the same time, there's such an extreme difference in the timbre and in the rhythm, right? Uh, the you have this like huge snare sound cutting through the gauze over it, uh, and whereas the you know the drums are working to the sixteenth note, you've got the, the those medieval melodies on the guitars that dar 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 are played to like the half or the whole note, way slower, uh, and there's just this. Um, just the fact that they were able to capture them simultaneously um, in the production is impressive, I think. Right? There's like the, the sound, the sonic space on this record is fantastic and sounds like a real, a real achievement of production. Um, that's, and, see, that's interesting uh, because I actually, I, I'm pretty critical of the production on this record. Now, um, listening to this now through like a nice set of headphones... It is better than I originally thought, but man, this plays really weird on like a car stereo. Um, like if you're if you're listening through maybe like a cheaper set of speakers, this album rapidly becomes like all snare and vocals. Like uh, I don't know if it's a matter of bass response on cheaper systems or something, but man, like a lot of the intricate guitar textures can really get lost. Um, and then adding to that, this is sort of an aside that I'm not going to judge the album off of, but there's something like almost wrong with the Spotify upload of this album. I would recommend nobody listen to this on Spotify. I, I don't know if it's like, uh, some, it, I would say a compression issue. It's not a compression issue because it sounds better on YouTube, which has worse compression, but it's almost like it was like a previous mix of the record, extremely thin, like unpleasantly trebly, like uh, mm. like uh, a low pass filter wasn't run on the really high frequencies. Just just don't do it. Listen to it on YouTube if you want to listen to it digitally. But um, here I will say it sounds substantially better on headphones. But for me, the guitars kind of exist in a weird mid range where it's like I either want a little bit more bite and compression or even fuzzier, more blown out style, but that's just a personal thing. I think the content is very good regardless. I, I get what you mean that there's not like a perfect, when you have these two levels of the music, there's like, you know, I get, yeah, the snare is very loud, but sue me, I like the snare. Right? <laughs> it's, uh, you know, and, and, and I think, well, here's what I think. Maybe this isn't, Maybe there really are production problems on this, especially given how good, high quality the production is mm. and how rich and fleshed out the tones are. Um, maybe that's true, but for me, an important part of Inquisition is the sort of gorked uh, sort of excess of it. Yeah, I get you. Um, it, it should sound kind of crazed and unhinged. Um, and the last record, although it showcased his... I mean, Dagon, the interesting thing, Dagon has amazing control as a guitarist. Yeah. You can hear him finely tuning individual notes and phrases and sort of dialing in varying styles almost on a dime, right? And the Black Mask for a Masquerade showcases that. But, but 
Inquisition's music is built on this bed of just uncontrolled spastic aggression. Um, and I think the, uh, I think that's gotta be there. So the fact that there's something just a little, like that there's basically noise generated in here. I'm okay with that, I guess. Um, Uh, That's fair. I think that I just listen at this point. I just listen to Inquisition so much as a sort of guitar clinic. Uh, My priorities are just set differently for the production. For sure. For sure. Okay, so back to this sort of big picture thing. Um, with you've we've talked about the this multi-layer approach, right? Why am I harping on this? Because in a sense, that's fundamental to a lot of black metal. Um, the classic example being "I Am the Black Wizards," where you have um, extremely aggressive, almost death thrash riffing with uh, this sort of spiraling, uh, spiraling eerie guitar leads over it, and then of course that huge wash of keys that comes in. And, you know, totally changes the the harmonic character, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or even like something like Graveland, right? That's a little more out there. The keys are totally cut loose from the guitar. Um, but, okay, so in either of those bands, the layers are mutually reinforcing in an obvious way, mm-hmm. right? You have, you know, in, in Ember you have, you know, da-dum, da-dum... Dum dum da dum da dum. Um, that that falsetto note was that was that was a little rough, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I'm I'm a little out of practice. Um, the uh, I think I've never in my life attempted to sing the keyboard part to that song. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> um. But but they're you know they're they're two parts of a broader they're two interlocking melodies in a bigger idea they're mutually supporting and although the keyboards are more floaty and ethereal they're working together to create something vast sublime and really crushing um, and in Graveland too right the keyboards are just adding to the sort of um, uh, berserker haze of the guitars yeah. Um, but here, um, and, and often like in similar melodic material. Anyway, but in this case, on this record, the layer, these layers are realized so distinctly and yet working at such different tempos and with such different intensity levels and timbre that it's like they're moving in opposite directions. Mm-hmm. Like level one isn't just objectively fast. Um, because, you know, 16th note. It also just, because of the tones, they're hard. They feel fast. It's sort of surging into the future, biting into it. And level two, it's objectively slow, but it's also so gentle, right? And that it, it doesn't just feel like it's moving slower. It almost feels like it's moving backwards in relation to level one. That That's just a feeling I had as I listened to this, and I had to try to articulate it. Um, and I don't think that's an accident. I think that's related to all the stuff that I was talking about up front about the sort of, um, the, uh, the, the interlocking, um, aspects of black metal. Um, and what, what links, if, if you think about level one and level one surging forward, and then the second level on top of it, moving backwards, it's not like a paradox. There's a shape to it. You can think of it as a spiral. Like 
level one, if you look at the bottom of a spiraling, you know, spiraling galaxy or something, right? The bottom is moving one direction. The top is moving the opposite direction. Each of you, each of the these levels are moving against each other, but also into each other. Uh, and it's like this circulation of energy between two poles. Uh, on this record, you know, it, Dagon's always thinking about like galaxies and shit, right? The spiral galaxy. Or in track 10, which I really like but didn't sample, he talks about the spiral of the sun. What, yeah, um, what's, your, what's your favorite and, song that you, that you didn't sample on this? Mine is um, Secrets from the Wizard Forest of Forbidden Knowledge. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's mine too. Secrets from the Forbidden Forest of Wizard Knowledge. With the totally forest. demented clean vocal line. <laughs> yes. Into the spiral of the sun. Um, which is really goth. That's almost a Peter Murphy uh, thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this is a great record, I think, in part because it has so many favorite songs on it. Mm-hmm. I would be really hard-pressed to pick them all. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's worth noting, even though it's like a simple and obvious thing, that Inquisition is a black metal band that does a lot of short songs per album. That is like kind of a rare thing these days. These punchy three to four minute things. That's another way that I feel like this has the essential core of Inquisition. I was going to say that. Thank you for pointing that out. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm pretty sure the songs were longer on the last record. Many of these really are sub four minute or almost all of them are sub four minute. Yeah, the last one had uh, some longer stuff stretching into, like, you know, the seven-minute mark. And, you know, listening to Inquisition style, you almost think that's, like, a natural thing, that these would be these long, you know, narrative songs. But they resist that temptation a lot, and I think that that makes the music more interesting, actually. You know, just getting these little snippets of what could be these very long compositions. For for sure. So, um... Yeah, there's there's a lot of and what it means is there's a lot of interesting tracks on here. Um, but anyway, so yeah, musically, structurally, we can hear the sort of the violent stuff cycling into the ethereal and uh, sort of euphoric stuff cycling back into the violent stuff, and that's expressed very clearly on "Force of Death is the Force of Life." I love how he left off the definite article there. The the that's very mm-hmm. Slavic. Um, But um, uh, this is basically the only one that sounds all the way through like an old school Inquisition ripper. Like this could have been on like the one of the first three records. Um, uh, And this, like the title of the record, has that kind of definitional thing to it, right? This is um, it's like the the song, the lyrics are like a Cliff's Notes for the record and for black metal in general. and, you know, at a time when people seem sort of confused about what black metal is, I think Dagon is trying to remind us. Right, so uh, we're just going to, this is a short grinder. We're going to listen to the whole thing and then talk mostly about the lyrics. Seeds 
I was actually going to sample this one before you got to it. Oh, yeah. Doesn't it just fuck? Isn't Eagle of the Stars is mosh call of the year? You just like everything with an eagle in it. I, I, I love eagles. <laughs> you're so you're such a you're such a, a, a raptor enabler, black metal guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. What, what, what did you like about this one? Oh, yeah. Well, I it's sort of like I. There were a couple ways I could have taken my side of this review, and I did consider, you know, emphasizing more that, you know, the return in some ways to the hyper-aggressive early Inquisition style, but I figured you had that covered, so I'd just point out more specific guitar features instead. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, so this one is hyper-aggressive. There's about four riffs. Um... Uh, the the first one is a little that like sort of da, 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 da. that that one's almost a little long for Inquisition. It's almost got a Slavic black metal quality to it, or like a Nile thing to mm-hmm. it. Um, uh, but um, really, uh, just I think it speaks for itself why it's awesome. Every single line of the vocals is awesome and heavy. Um, On Earth, I was a serpent. Um, My favorite line is blah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, this is uh, someone on the Discord was saying he kind of missed. Sorry, that was my 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 ring with eagles on it smacking into my table. Um, uh, the um, uh, someone on the Discord was saying he kind of misses the old uh, sort of um, the old Lovecraftian frog vocals. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a, which is fair. I mean, there was that was part of the demented aspect of Inquisition, the shamanic vibe. However, I'm this record to me sort of validates the decision to change the vocals because the lyrics are really important here, and I like that I can hear them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the the lyrics are extremely audible throughout this record. Yes, he wants people to listen to the lyrics. So, um, uh, you know, this is one of the big. Ba- there really isn't a more fundamental key to black metal and the worldview that it, you know, taps into and um, expands on 
than that line. The force of death is life. The force mm-hmm. of life is death. And you can say that and not really know what it means. Um, but I think for all of us, there are moments in our, there, there are moments where like we really sort of get it, right? Um, force of life is death, right? I mean, you, uh, um, you can think about what, what it all requires is not thinking about life as the individual organism or, or like a collective of individual organisms but as a force cutting across or the line between different organisms and beings, right? Uh, like the force of life is death. You can think about, um, um, obviously about predation as fueling life, but you can also think about life in its essence as war and conflict in that life is a struggle against gravity. It raises itself out of the earth and it devours the inorganic. Um, life is war on the inorganic world and on gravity. Or you know, gravity is part of the inorganic world. It's the ultimate inorganic. Um, but also, there's another way of thinking about it, uh, or another aspect of it. Right, the force of life is death. Um, in the way that when you're thinking across time, death appears as a moment in a process of life that cuts across indivi- that transmits from individual to individual, generation to generation. Um, I remember I got that for the first time when I was reading Egil's saga. And Eagles, all the and the sons in each generation just reproduce the same pattern as their fathers. And when Eagles' dad dies in a modern novel, right? This would be like twenty fucking pages, right? Oh my God, Eagles' dad died. How did Eagle feel about it? What did he think? What did his dad say? You know, um, in the book, it's one sentence. Mm-hmm. And the point isn't because Eagles' dad doesn't matter. They were great friends. The point is that uh, Egil feels a complete assurance of the continuity from his father to himself. Um, you know, there, there's a later part in the book where Egil's sons die, and that's a big deal, right? But um, when his dad dies, it's just how it is supposed to be, and the ongoing, the unfolding process of the Patra line just is transmitted to Egil. Uh, but yeah, force of death is life, right? Uh, you know, life as itself, um, a violent force, um, and as fueled by that. Um, and once you start life itself as will to power, overcoming incorporation, domination, um, and that's essential to the genre. Um, and I think it's something a lot of people have completely forgotten, um, because they think it's just quote, dark fantasy. And here's Dagon hitting us over the head with it. And reminding us that these things depend on one another, that life and death cycle into one another, each contains the other. Uh, through death, life springs off the ground once more into the new cycle. Um, and, you know, the ultimate view, right, is life and death a single force rooted in the cosmic eye or the spiral of the sun, right? So you're looking beyond this opposition of life and death to what there really is, which is power. So anyway, there's some pretty cool post-punk stuff that happens on this record. Nice. <laughs> you can't, like, front-load the philosophical shit. Now I just got to talk about Bon Jovi and shit. <laughs> no, no, we're going to keep... I just felt like I had to do those back-to-back because otherwise it would be impossible to, like, uh, you know... It, yeah, I had to do them back-to-back. Let's talk about Bon Jovi, man. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's an important side of this record. Now, there, I've made all the... Everyone's done their fucking homework. Now let's talk about riffs. Yeah. Okay. Well, before we get to Bon Jovi, let's get to post-punk. So, um, there's a lot of sort of goth and post-punk stuff across this record, and I'm not nearly as well-versed in that stuff as you are, so I'm hoping that maybe you can guide me a little bit as to where it's coming from. Uh when I first heard some of the really melodic passages on this record, my brain went to emo just as a default because that's in the water of black metal these days, but it's not at mm-hmm. all. It's really directly from goth music, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And it's at its clearest, it, at least at one point in the very next track after Force of Death, which is Memories Within an Empty Castle in Ruins, which is just basically like almost a, a fucking cure song in a large part. So um, at least that's what I think it is. But you probably know the specific bands he's referencing better than me. So let's listen to the first couple minutes of this and mm-hmm. maybe you can untangle it. So a ton of interesting stuff happens there. I mean, that's kind of the closest that Inquisition's ever sounded to, like, DSBM in a way. That's Um, a really good point. Yeah, which is not a wavelength that they operate in, like, at all. Like, this, this, this seems so radically different in terms of mood than anything else in Inquisition, but it still works within the album, even coming off of, like, a, a total, like, satanic ripper, like the last song. So... We start with that that sort of dreamy, watery, clean guitar line, and then into that that big sort of like sad major key melodic punk riff that's trimmed out, and we play around with variations of that, and then we get into a series of these um, elaborate arpeggio figures. The first of which is again like very post punk to me, and the second of which toward the end of the sample almost sounds like sort of the the brightest thing that McGlaw could do in in their standard riffing format. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. 
so whenever I hear those sort of watery, flanged out lead lines, mm-hmm. my brain always goes to goth and post-punk. And I think that's the intent here. But can you point to more specifically what he might be drawing off there? Well, Death Metal Guy, I can't give you off the top of my head a specific band that it's a dead ringer for. Um, but, like, I think what it, it, it captures an era, basically, of, like, towards the late 80s, um, you have a process where goth realizes it doesn't need to just be about negative emotion. Mm-hmm. Right, and in some ways, then converges more on the affirmative worldview in, that that black metal has, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, I mean, when I think the the feel I get throughout the record, both in terms of the the arpeggio stuff and the more sort of textury stuff, I just I think of the first Dead Can Dance record, which is one of my favorite records ever, and as <laughs> you can hear, there's a it's a sort of playful and um, it's it's a sort of playful walk through a misty garden, um, and it's kind of there's a, 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 a serenity and lightness to it. But you can also all the musical DNA is just on the two Joy Division records. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I hear a similarity to that and things that came around at the same time. I would also say the first Slow Dive record, yeah, like Cocteau yeah. Twins. Right. What basically like shoegaze is just a rebranding of goth without some of the things that were sort of um, that, you know, like the hipsters of the time found scary or weird, goofy. Um, So like, you know, the first slow dive record has um, guitar playing like that. Um, Miranda Sex Garden would be uh, Cranes. There are some checks for the people. Um, (laughs) uh, But also... um, yeah, so that era of goth sort of opening up and finding, instead of being more just about like crippling depression, uh, becoming more about a sort of uh, um, a fuller experience of life based on insight into, you know, mystical insight, some of it dark. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I get it. And it, it, it's interesting to hear how how smoothly and contiguously it incorporates into Inquisition stuff, even if the emotional wavelength is, like, sort of jarring at first listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, the first time I heard that, that like, melodic punk riff, that really simple power chord, that... Dun, dun, yeah, dun, yeah. Dun, which is, like... If you if you put a guy like shouting and just turn them into suspended held chords, you've got like a ghost inside breakdown or something. Or I that's what I thought was going to happen with that like fill in the drums. You think it's going to abruptly slow down into almost like a breakdown configuration, but no, we just we go back to the blast. Um, so this isn't an isolated occasion. These sorts of watery, clean guitar lines and even overt sort of goth gestures permeate the record there's probably like five big sections of songs across Mm -hmm. this album that are dedicated to that um and i think it's really cool um even uh the uh wizard forest song that we like so much sort of plays on that Mm -hmm. except that's also playing around with more of the 70s heavy metal ideas that we saw more full-fledged on the last record um so, yeah, I think that that's really neat, and I hope this is an element that Inquisition keeps playing with on following records, because I think Dagon's really good at pulling it off in surprising ways. And even though the sort of, like, uh, you know, downcast post-punk thing is something we've had in black metal for a while, 
it, it's very easy to do that and make it sound okay. It's very hard to do it and make it sound great, and Dagon makes it sound great. And it's it's hard to do it without breaking the wall of blast beats. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's it, he's, even Migla. Migla sounds the most post-punky or gothy when they're doing the sort of killing joke Tom stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, mm-hmm. and that's clearly a, a deliberate thing that they're channeling here. Mm-hmm. Dagon still, uh, you know, is dedicated to the principle of the very rigid machine-like drum performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to hear how he makes it work even within that context. Um, now, the other side of this record, the other weird influence is the the big 80s rock stuff, which is fascinating every time it pops up. Dagon just clearly fucking loves glam, and I don't think it's ever come out more fully on this record. So for that, let's go to the second to last track, the title track, Veneration of Medieval Mysticism and Cosmological Violence. And with a title like that, you're probably imagining something kind of austere. But instead... Something like that main riff could be a throwaway gesture in another band's song, but Dagon commits to it completely, and the entire rest of the song grows out of that seed. Um, 
And even in the uh, the third riff in that sequence, when we get toward the end of the sample that I chose, that bigger, stompier riff still has that sort of bluesy Western flair on the turnaround at the end. Like the last riff could almost be like a, a Black Label Society riff or something. So whenever you see something like that, it means that this is an idea that the musician is taking very seriously and believes has value in and of itself. And it's obviously awesome just because those are cool kinds of riffs, you know, it, it, you know, you, you get so far away from the pentatonic scale, you end up coming back to it if you're a metalhead. Um, but it also indicates that Dagon sees it, the, the sort of power that those riffs have as inherently reflecting the themes of the music. You know, when he's playing these like bluesy cowboy chords, he's not perceiving them as purely referential. He sees them as like a logical part of this crazy fucking like occult cosmology that he's established. And I just think that's a really fascinating perspective. Yeah, um, I think like funnily you could get that riff is like a fleshed out version of some of the most... um, Some of some of the most sort of like uh, um, some of the most big dick moments on the first few records. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Those are more stripped down, but this is like a fully fleshed out version of these kinds of um, pentatonic, um, pentatonic, very powerful pentatonic chord things he did on the early records. Um, It. It feels bluesy. It also has the Celtic vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a, uh, I don't know, yeah, this is like a chest-thumping riff, or a chest-thumping sequence of riffs, sequence of textures. Um, uh, yeah, it's it, it, it's very cool. Um, you know, I was thinking also about the, um, about the lyrics here. He... He like keeps insisting on terms like medieval, right? Mm-hmm. He he just he, like a dark medieval night. He just wants it all to be here. There is the sort of um, he insists on the medieval, the, the satanic, the cosmic, the medieval, and the pagan are all here, all all in one on one thing, uh, and to come back to the cosmological violence theme, what would that mean? Well, if you think about the, um, say, the Norse cosmology, um, the world sort of comes into existence, sort of congeals out of primordial chaos, maybe into the body of, but uh, body of Ymir, and that itself happens through a whirlwind conflict of fire and ice, a vortex, a rotating vortex of fire and ice in Gnunga Gap, and the first sort of historical event that founds the cosmos is. Um, an act of completely unprovoked aggression, right? Odin just kills Ymir, and the world begins.
All right, we are back with a uh, another veteran band returning to the show. This is the new record by uh, originally Cuban Narboleth, titled A Pale Crown, out now on Folter Records. Uh, I say formerly Cuban. Uh, these guys reside in Spain now. And uh, with Narboleth, uh, we covered their last record, uh, Summa Cum Nox Arcana, back in 2022? Oh, 21, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um And that was a record that we both basically enjoyed when we first heard it. And then we listened to it more and more and more. And then it ended up on both of our year end lists. And it's actually become of all the records we've covered on the show, probably in the top 10 most enduring as far as me listening to it on a regular basis. Same dude. Yeah. It's uh, a, a phenomenally good deep cut black metal record that really grows on you and you only fully appreciate after, you know, maybe five or more listens. Um, And maybe the most impressive thing about it is that it gets there. You know, it, it arrives at such a position of excellence just through just totally workmanlike manipulation of already existing elements. Summa Cum Nox Arcana and Narboleth as a whole is essentially Franco-Finnish black metal with some particular sort of Spanish flair to it. But really, it's just composed out of things that you've essentially heard before. They're just so good at writing it and so good at assembling these elements into a novel form that, you know, they're beating out nearly everybody. So when I heard that a new Narboleth record was coming out, I was very excited to cover it and also like at the same time sort of dreading it because I just wasn't sure if they were going to be able to match the last record. Um, And the result with A Pale Crown is not them matching the last record, but sort of moving in a lateral direction. Um, Narboleth, it seems, on this album is doing what a, a few highly melodic black metal bands that we're fans of are doing now, which is moving back toward the origin, back toward a more Scandinavian style, and slightly downplaying the most melodic elements uh, in pursuit of something with a little bit more contrast, a little bit more bite, and traditional darkness. Um I really like this record. I think that I'll like it even more after I've put more listens into it. I'm not as immediately fond of it just because Summa Cum Nox are kind of really traded in exactly the sort of thing that I really love in black metal in general. But I can't say that this is a lesser record. I just think that it's after very different things. Um, I would draw a parallel here very distinctly to Passeism. And how Alternance from last year was, uh, in its relationship to the first record, Eminence, very similar to this album's relationship to Summa Cum Nox Arcana, where they're taking the basic framework, making it darker, more aggressive, and more difficult, and sort of daring the audience to like it as much when it's been stripped of a lot of its more kind of immediately enjoyable pop flavor. Um, so I really enjoyed this one a lot, uh, even though it's it's certainly not as like immediately embracingly enjoyable as the last one. But uh, Black Metal Guy, what did you think of it? Well, I think, you know, 
Narboleth, uh, we talked about this with the last record, right? They're sort of, their patron deity is the moon. Right? They, they yeah. worship the moon, and they're about as elusive as the moon. Um, so I think the, uh, the last one took some time to understand. I think this one's going to take me some time to understand, too. And I think maybe we can use the review to try to start figuring it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, um, you know, like, I think that, you know, this one's definitely sort of more, I don't know about more aggressive, because the last one was pretty high intensity, too, mm-hmm. but certainly more brooding, darker than the last one. Um, and that's theoretically more my thing. Um, but there is a bit less of the unique uniqueness that that record had. We should try to capture, maybe flesh that out a bit for people, because it wasn't... It, they achieved something. They used this established technique that you might get from a Finnish or French band, but to capture a mood that really isn't like anything else in black metal. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the lunar aspect of the music. Like, there was something um, something feminine to the sound. Yeah, it's, it's an extremely no. feminine record. Right. It, which and, is and, interesting, because it's very powerful at the same time. It's, exactly. it's sort of like about, like, um, you know, dark female mystic power. Right. You know. Right. And that's not to call the band feminine or anything like that. It's to say rather, like, Right. These are these are men worshiping the primordial female as embodied in the moon. Mm-hmm. And so, like, think about like if a poet writes a poem about a a beautiful woman or an awe-inspiring and remote woman or anything like that. Right. If he writes a poem about the moon, the poem will it will evoke the goddess. Right. It will it will be the poem will be feminine. Mm-hmm. Right. The uh, the uh, or you know same with a painting. Right, uh, the artistic, you, you know, you can be, uh, you can have a a passionate masculine attraction to this lunar feminine force, and still uh, in 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 worshiping in your devotion to that force, you evoke it and you produce something that sounds feminine, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's a very unique thing. Um, and the music had. Uh, there were moments of tenderness on it um, and a sort of crazed, sum- a summery exuberance to it. Uh, it, it sort of sounded as... Um, the Flamen record has something like that too, but in a much more sort of diurnal way. Yeah. Um, this is a... Uh, this is a sort of amorous, nocturnal summer music. Um uh, it's one of the first black metal records I played for my girlfriend, and it's still a go-to for both of us. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of become a special record to me in that way. Yeah. Um, and the and what other things about it? There are really big moments on it that go with that exuberance, right? There's like classic, as you would say, Vakken-style stadium black metal tricks, like big flashy dropouts. Um, sort of uh, isolated vocal lines, um, wind-ups. Um, you know, even the sort of what we described as kind of the trick song at the beginning of the record, which really mm-hmm. does just sound like, you know, it is just sort of like the Migla Sargeist banger, right? And then the rest of the record sounds nothing like that. But there's this sort of flair for the dramatic throughout it. This record really pairs back the drama, and although it still has the, the lunar... 
um, aspect. It's a different side of the moon, maybe less feminine, mm-hmm. um, uh, maybe there, or with a greater austerity to it. Um, and harmonically, it emphasizes... It, you know, this record emphasizes some of the weirdest and most difficult aspects of Narboleth's sound, um, which is that the guitar, even though they use these chording techniques that you hear in the French and Finnish bands, they have a really different harmonic and melodic ear, um, which can produce melodies that are almost jarring. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because they have any outlandish dis- dissonance in them, but just because of the, uh, just because of something more as you would say there's the workmanlike aspect in this record is the record there's not some crazy chords or anything it's just the melodies are shaped in really unusual ways and i'll i'll try to get into that with my samples um it's so it's an interesting record it's it's mysterious and uh, i don't yet know how much i like it yeah yeah it's it's definitely more challenging than the last one and uh, I, I think that at this point, especially over the years that we've done the show, um, we sort of, uh, I, I want to say that the, the show almost started at the end of at least, not even my interest, but my like absolute patience for the Franco-Finnish style. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um I've, I've always loved that style a lot ever since I was a teenager in high school, you know, when just the first, you know, spring shoots of that grass were coming up out of the soil. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, I listened to a ton of it over the years. And by the time we got to doing Terminus, you know, especially after that first year or two, we were just really exhausted. So it's kind of nice to me to hear so many of these bands that trade in that hyper-melodic style going for something a little bit more difficult. And I think that I just, I have more patience and more interest in higher contrast stuff these days after just so many years and so many records of this like contiguous flowing elegant melody. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's uh, let's just immediately get to the music. Uh, I want to play part of a track called On the Sight of Dusk. Now, I'll say that this record gets to, at least in my initial listens, kind of a slow start. The first few tracks are pretty straightforward Narboleth tracks that are good, but not really exceptional. It's on this track, I think this is the fourth one, where things start Mm -hmm. to really take off. And I think this is, I think something is being proven by Narboleth on the first few tracks to play within their style but in a, a more stripped down austere way to sort of like prove their bare bones chops at writing this music but one of the cool things about narboleth is all of its odd little eccentricities and on the side of desk is where they allow that to happen so this is just a couple minutes long but a ton of interesting stuff happens and we'll we'll break it down structurally after listening Side. 
So this this sample is taken from starting about halfway through the song. So it's the sample opens with basically the song's main riff, which is like a a, a straightforward Narboleth riff, where you can tell that it's cut from the cloth of the Franco Finnish style, but with s- sort of a, a slightly off kilter sense of rhythm in the notation of the trem riff. Then we spill into this really cool, elaborate flamenco passage that works as a little breather before, you know, the big stonker riff comes in. The uh, the twin guitar uh, Franco finish riff that is also kind of like Swedish Black Death in a way. Um, and then we conclude with that big black and roll stomper. What I like about Narboleth and what I really like about these riffs is that they... They seem to like to work off of maybe the opposite expected emotional wavelength for whatever part they're in, or they like to put little emotional tricks at the ends of riffs. Like one thing I've noticed Narboleth really likes to do on that big twin guitar riff is as they end the riff, instead of sort of concluding with the standard like, uh, you know, Melodeth diminished scale that would go there, they drop the last phrase down a semitone, which gives it that slightly uglier, you know, more sighing French quality to it, mm-hmm. which which actually, you know, reaches closer to genuine French black metal. That's the stuff that's been extracted. Uh, that's the stuff that's or that's the stuff that's really been left behind as it's been incorporated with Finnish black metal. Is the uh, the the ugly sour turn, the mutilation turn at the ends of riffs. Um, and something similar happens in the opposite way with the big black and roll riff, which is just like a big Bathorian stomper, you know, just big power chord thing, but then starts putting in the sort of francophone chord inflection against that really aggressive driving rhythm, which gives it an odd emotional color. Um, I really like it. the The album is dotted with like little songwriting tricks like this that aren't that crazy when just described, but when layered on top of each other over and over again, you get something that's like really melodically and, uh, you know, atmospherically complex. And I really like that. You know, you're right about the mutilation thing. Um, the, uh, like the guitar playing is more focused on arpeggiated leads than the stuff that's just drawing mostly on Senor Volant and Kristallnacht, right? Mm-hmm. Or Osculum and Fom. This is way... The, the the idea of French black metal here is much closer to, yeah, Mutilation or Celestia or, uh, you know, any of the sort of more... Uh, the LLN stuff and the more kind of necrotic, depressive stuff that was coming out of France earlier in the 2000s. Yeah, I think I think that LLN might be a pretty prominent influence for these guys. It's just so weird to hear that stuff in a, a more professional and polished no. and better played form. <laughs> I, I think you're right. No, that's got to be it. It's like, and that's why it sounds so weird. It's like you're hearing just... Uh, yeah, the jarring harmonies in a mutilation. The, the weird blend of seamlessly flowing melody and jarring sort of harmonic maneuvers that you would get in a mutilation song mm-hmm. um, happening in this much more polished, uh, in this sort of more competent, more lush sounding and louder sort of 
uh, music. Yeah, um, and it's it's again that's almost an inversion of what made some of the LLN stuff so interesting, which was like that you would have these sort of just bizarrely sumptuous elaborate melodies but presented in such a like fumbling you know yes scratchy style um so they've just sort of flipped it around now they're reinserting the ugliness Mm. into a style where that had been entirely stripped away i think that yeah that's a good point so um yeah let's try to get more into that gnarliness on this record and try to articulate what that is. What's um, the, uh, so I'm starting with the second track, A Pale Crown. So this is, as you would say, before the album gets really gets going. And I would sort of, I would have to agree. Uh, um, but um, it's weird because this track is based on a really big riff. Um, I'm just going to play you the first two minutes of the song, which are focus sort of in the way that a more straightforward, uh, this song is structured sort of like a straightforward Finnish black metal banger, basically. Uh, and the beginning of the song just gives us a lot of repetitions of this big, long melody, uh, you know, the trems, trem, blast beat, elongated melody. Uh, but this big riff embodies everything that's weirdest and most inaccessible about Narvalas bass riffing technique. Um, So you'll get to hear it a lot over the course of the sample.
oh man, the, the same thing is happening as the last time I reviewed him, dude. I'm like listening to these things closer and more intently, and I'm getting to be like a holy shit about it. The, these riffs, they every almost every riff that I've heard from Narboleth like sounds immediately familiar and then moves in a really unexpected way. I, I think that's what I like so much about these guys. They're like this intuitive, like, oh, yeah, it's a Franco finish riff. And then it just it wanders off in a totally different direction. Like that main riff there, that the fact that it just keeps climbing up and keeps ratcheting up the tension where it's starting mm-hmm. from a relatively conventional place. I love that. Yeah, it starts on something that's sort of like, okay, m- minor chord, big fifth intervals, fanfare. Do, 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 do. And then it, as it starts climbing, you end up with a lot of kind of major chords. Uh, and you get repetitions of that kind of fanfare, leap of fifth. And then it smooths out into much longer, like, whole, whole bar, uh, you know, whole bar notes um yeah they really like to hang on to and usually the chords that they'll hang on to are are pretty tense complex ones yes they're hanging on to tense chords and they break them uh they're not just gritting it they break it often in the middle of the measure or uh something like that they um they're not just playing for this for that for that um it's uh um, and there's this legato feeling to it that's cool. They sort of slip from one into the next. And then they just sort of kind of reintroduce that uh, fifth leaping fanfare thing. And, mm-hmm. and just the, the arpeggiated leads that they were doing that uh, doing that fanfare with. The, the arpeggios come back and you get more of that sort of quarter note motion. Um, and, it, you know, it's really long. Yeah, um, it's extremely it goes, long. It literally, you can imagine it as going through an arc in your head, right? Not just in the conventional sense that a riff has an arc, it, you know, moves in this meaningful way. But, like, this really is an arch. Um, and it sort of flattens and smooths out again at the end. Uh, and um, it's... I cannot describe how bizarre the harmonies here are. <laughs> um, it's... Like, so it, the harmonies are, the best way I can describe it is um, disjunction. Um, like, they're not, it's not like they're going to play a gnarly tritone or mm-hmm. just dip like a half step in order to introduce dissonance or just do the sort of DSO thing and play a chord that includes all of the above, right? Um, but the... They will, it's like they're moving between off notes within the scale. It's it's almost like almost every note they're hitting outside of those big fifths is like a weaker note in the relevant scale or chord. And uh, is... It, it's, it's almost like they, they take like a standard finisher French black metal shape yeah. and mm. then they like... They play the inversion of it. They play all the all the notes that are left out of it. So you get like the shadow of the original thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, in yes, instead of being weighted, it's where the emphasis the emphasis isn't going towards the one, five, minor six, flat seven, mm-hmm. right? Or and I guess sort of flat three. It's it's ending up elsewhere somehow, and 
the introduction of these major chords also does that, right? There's there just aren't major chords in the Franco-Finnish stuff. It's all it all fits into this seamlessly flowing uh, Aeolian melody. Mm-hmm. We, we used to say Dorian, we were wrong. Um, uh, um, it it it's um it's really sort of although nothing they're playing there is super dissonant. It creates tremendous dissonance and tension. Um, Nothing resolves in the way you expect it would. And each of the... You could probably break down that arc into four to five different parts. Each of them has a slightly... Suggests a different emotional quality that is then not fulfilled. And I'm almost inclined to be critical to the riff because it sort of... Each of the maneuvers can't almost cancels out the last one. Mm-hmm. By the end of the riff, I'm not entirely sure what's happened. I can tell that there's a mood of kind of, um, I can, t- there's this kind of high tension, not high in the sense of like very tense, but like sort of noble. I get what they're going there. There's a kind of lofty tension and there's a refinement of the kind that you got on the last album, right? They're interested in these sort of shades, you know, this sort of, uh, you know, maybe, um, reverent contemplation tinged by melancholy or, you know, uh, Sort of, sort of a pensive introspection that becomes energetic uh, and strong, or any of these kinds of shades of emotion. I get that, but it's like each thing is shading into the next thing, which is like erasing, unnegating the last shade. I, I really don't know if I. It's a very thoughtfully worked out and elaborate riff. It is not a cliche, big, long sweetly flowing riff with a lot of meaningless notes in it. It, it, There's really something going on artistically, but I'm not sure it works. I I think it works just because I think that the... I think that this is a band that's like very concerned with mood and trying to draw out very specific Hmm. kinds of moods. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the thing that I get from this record is sort of like... um, I think this record like relates very directly back to Summa Cum Nox Arcana, but if if Summa Cum Nox Arcana is sort of you know this um, you know this this be, I, I don't know best case scenario of like worship of the divine dark feminine, maybe a pale crown is like what happens when it goes too far and it becomes sort of like. It becomes manic and anxious and sort of breaks apart under the weight of its own emotion and intensity. You know, there's something very fraught and very sort of oddly paranoid about a lot of this music, despite how pretty it is. And I think that that gets expressed in, you know, these sort of like somber, uh, disjunctive ways that a lot of the riffs end. I think the cancellation that you're talking about is a deliberate thing, and I think that it's done to pretty cool effect here. Um, I I think that something interesting is being expressed. You know, black metal is sort of about, like... if, If black metal is at its most base level about what if bad thing is actually good... You know, maybe Narboleth is saying bad thing is actually good, but it can still carry like actual bad stuff with it. You know, what what happens mm-hmm. when, you know, romantic chivalric impulse uh, 
goes too far and starts rapidly consuming itself. I don't know, I'm spitballing here, but if it makes me think like that, then I appreciate it. Um, I don't know, I find this really fascinating. It, okay, that, that, that makes some sense. Um, one other... One going back. One other thing I could use to describe it is like suspended, right? Yes, very I'll, suspended. I don't know enough to know what a suspended note in a chord is or a suspended chord is, but the feeling that they got on the last record, there were a lot of these odd interval choices on the last record too, and it helped make it. On the last record, the odd interval choices often created a grit or a nuance that then was released in moments where they would sit more on a strong tone. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some of there's more and more of those strong tone resolutions as the record goes on, I think starting from track three. Mm-hmm. Um, but like this uh, this track definitely just sort of refuses that and everything is just totally suspended um, and tending away from uh, not just from resolution, but also from a stable place to push off of. No, I get um, it. Yeah, it's it's like floating against its own will. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it's, it. It's the like a, record... a, a witch places a, a levitation curse upon you, you know? Oh, oh, damn. Damn, Death Metal Guy. You're making too much sense. You're just a <laughs> um, I like it's... it. You know, imagine that you're like, you're hovering in the air and you're like spinning and you're unable to orient yourself. And it's like... You can't cool. touch... Yeah, you can't touch anything. That yeah. sucks. Yeah, that's, right? that's kind of cool. The, whereas the last record has this kind of sleepwalking floating the last record has a suspend has a floatiness to it that ren- you know you're floating in a cool way right? yeah summa comes levitation buff yeah summa come nox arcana you're casting levitation on yourself here it's being cast upon you <laughs> yes yeah and it's levitation allows you to go to the moon or the beloved or the trees and touch them this mm-hmm. record you can't touch things yeah. um interesting um so yeah, so it's a weird, it's a weird riff. Um, <laughs> and in the riff two does it too, the second riff in that whole sequence. Yeah. It, you know, you sort of, it's almost like you're about to get a more consonant and aggressive fulfillment of riff one, but then it just dives away from it. And a really good example of what you're saying, the mutilation sort of downstep. I Often they're not moving by half steps. It might be like a whole step or more, but it just does, it goes like... Yeah. And then the the end of that double bass riff is just you kind of you go back into an aggressive mood, like a sort of um almost a martial affect at the end with like a scronk chord. Mm-hmm. It's um really weird. And then of course, I guess the song goes towards it, it it wants to move towards a you end up in a resting place for the song, maybe unusually so for an arboleth, because you end up in this kind of winter filleth section. That's kind of blissed out, but it takes like four or five minutes of this sort of like grinding suspension that doesn't indicate where it's going. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, very tricky music. It's very, uh, it's like you said, it, it's extremely elusive. It's um, mm-hmm. definitely a, uh, a black metal record where the elements at play are, are, are wind and water almost exclusively. Yeah, so, yes. Um, uh, so, and, you know, weird white light. Yeah. <laughs> um, to, so, to step beyond the veil, uh, 
This is the next one. This is a more compact and harmonically immediate track where you hear more of the strong tones you're used to. Um, and uh, I would say it's kind of analogous to Moon of a Thousand Shapes from the last record, which was a banger and a place where the record decisively locked in. Um, so uh, you can hear between A Pale Crown and To Step Beyond the Veil a big difference. This song gives you a, a lot more to hold on to and a more affirmative kind of mood. I never noticed, uh, I, I didn't pay super close attention to the album art on this until I was just listening and just looking at it. And I, I didn't realize that the the eclipsed moon there, the the sort of white shadow it's casting with the light has eyes in it. That's that that's a <laughs> that's a sort of like moon goddess looking down on a ritual site there. That's pretty cool. Oh, yeah, I see the eyes, too. Yeah, uh, I never know. Okay, oh. yeah. There's a whole and, context here, yeah. And it's a... Um, it's a... And it forms a horn. It mm-hmm. forms a moon goddess with horns, Yeah, right? The horns of the moon are manifest, even though it's a full moon, which is cool. Onto a and like yet, primitive, like, druidic ritual site. Yes, uh, for, uh, yes where the, the, the menhirs are sort of... Uh, um, the megaliths are sort of... You can see it. It's kind of like a, a sundial or a moon dial, but it looks kind of broken up. Yeah, that's um, interesting. But really cool. Okay, yeah, the cover. I initially, you know, I initially wasn't sure about the cover because there's something weird about the space on the cover. Yeah, the framing then, is strange. Yeah, zooming, the framing is strange. But is it supposed to be an hourglass? Zooming in on it, it's extremely cool. Yeah, yeah, there is something hourglassy about it, and stylistically you just get in the what in the sort of like biomorphic root root and flesh quality of mm-hmm. the stuff around it 
you can see both classic death metal art and the blaze birth hall yeah um, this is this is intriguing yeah. it's a cool cover um but the, anyway so that's uh to step beyond the veil that is uh that's cool um, exactly more weird fucking riffs <laughs> I really like more weird riffs. I love the huge, just bad, bad, bad power chord at the end of this like elegant, delicate uh, main trem riff that just sort of like smashes it apart right at the end. I feel like the main trem riff actually feels ballsy. Oh yeah, it's it's powerful, but in that Narbaleth sense, it still has a very light touch to it. It is it is elegant, and I agree. Yes, the power chords at the end are are really different. So it's um that riff is much more just like a a sort of a a you know noble folky pagan black metal riff. Well, is that like a direct reinterpretation of Mother North? So there's where we were going. It might just be the Mother North riff. Um, and what it does, the cool thing it does is that it starts out in familiar harmonic territory. Um, and then at the end of the riff, da, 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 with that kind of big smashing power chords, mm-hmm. instead of doing the mutilation down step, it, it, it changes from a minor to a major tonality, a brightening major tonality, and the melody kind of almost, it feels like it lifts. You get like, I was thinking of like Toka or something. Yeah, it is those, very Toka. With yeah. it sort of turns into an aggressive major key um, mm-hmm. as part of this, basically writing pagan black metal riffs with actual chord changes to them rather than just around a root tone. So you end up with like very, sort of like... Um, very aggressive smiting major key melodies and <laughs> you, you end up with that there um and it sort of seesaws around in this kind of very satiricon way i looked through the notes the end of this record i was listening to it the first time i was like well this has got to be a satiricon cover and yeah. sure enough it was yeah it is <laughs> um and more than that i looked back through our old notes for the first time we reviewed first first time we reviewed narboleth um you mentioned satiricon in the notes there and on, on okay. this record, it's it's very it's all over this record. Um, this track, it's especially clear. Really feels like a satiricon riff. And let me propose a theory. All right. So the problem with satiricon um, is that I think as we've discussed before, it's like the individual parts are often amazing. You get like classic uh, classic folk black riffs and stuff. Um, uh, but the overall product is extraordinarily clunky. Yeah. Um, the parts sort of grate against one another. Occasionally you hear just bizarre bum intervals and in riffs or like, you know, weird weird riff writing choices. Um, but very often it's just the way the parts the parts kind of like um, smush into one another in, in a way that can be less than some of their parts. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, it's re- sometimes it's like a really heavy, sometimes they collide in a way that's really heavy, but often they don't. Um, and what, what I'm thinking is like, okay, if Narboleth is a band that takes Satyricon very seriously, then maybe the parts in the bad parts of Satyricon songs, the parts where the riff goes a little wonky or the song lurches into the next part and there's some bizarre harmonic disconnection. Narboleth hears it and they're like, yes, that's cool. They're like identifying heaviness in that disjunction. Yes, they're like, this is cool, this is heavy. And 
they take that accident and they make it into an art. And so it's almost like, you know, whether they're talking about like hovering away, hovering on the strangest tones or bending things in a mutilation way, there's also this way of like um, embracing the, the clunkiest aspects of, uh, yeah, well, it's like um, you could, Narboleth is the opposite of clunky. As musicians yeah. and songwriters, uh, the whole mood of their songs, this sort of uh, sl- the sort of levitating feel of them, totally not clunky. But they get there by embracing the clunkiest side of Satyricon, um, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, th- I think that there's definitely something to that. I think that Narboleth perceives disjunction in a very different way than uh, a lot of black metal bands do. Mm-hmm. And I, I think they see it as this this strange asset in and of itself that's sort of like not necessarily moored to rhythm or melody. They see the, the pure uh-huh. essence of the contrast as being like a unit of its own to play with. Oh. Um, so here's a really good That's example good of that. Let, let's go to uh, my last sample, Witness and Provider, which is a super cool song. This has one of the weirdest things uh, on this whole record, which is the, the, I, the, the some sort of strange trick is being played on the ear with the first riff that I'm going to play with this odd sidestepping guitar rhythm against this straightforward thrash beat arrangement, which just manipulates into sounding like it's in a really bizarre uh, time signature or something. And then we're going to get into a bridge section, which is like a very sophisticated satiricon riff. And then again, you're also going to have a really weird rhythmic fake out that occurs there too. I, I don't know. This is just this is another example of this band at their weirdest and most interesting.
So here we get back to uh, a technique that Narbaleth used constantly over Sumacum Nox Arcana, which is these very strange riff arrangements where the the time signature in effect is like 6-4. Now, a lot of people would think of that as like 3-4 or 3-8, but in the way these things are arranged, they really are more like 6-4. It's one contiguous thing, and... Man, that first riff, that what it's doing to your ear in that that very strange rhythmic pattern on the guitar just makes it sound totally off kilter. And then those weird decisions start compounding. You know, you get into the introduction of that big satiricon style riff with this drum intro that you think is going to go into this kind of stately take type section. But no, we get back to blast beats. And then when the rhythm does finally change into a double kick orientation, the snare is offset from where it would conventionally be. It's um, the, the overall effect is just this, this constant feeling of, familiarity with the basic melodic and rhythmic material on display, but it's been arranged in this like radically different fashion. And it's like your ear is, it's almost like listening to certain brutal death where your ear is trying to hook onto a pattern that it kind of recognizes, but it's never quite able to. Um, this is just, you, you know what the curse of Narboleth is? It's it's so easy to not pick up on these things because they they play with such sort of effortless confidence and the music is generally so highly melodic and smooth and contiguous. It's very easy for the record to breeze by you. And I think we said that when we talked about Summa Cum Nox Arcana. There's a way to listen to their records which is just flatly like an especially good Franco-Finnish black metal record. But if you don't take the time to sit there and like unpack all these odd little details, you'll be missing a huge part of what makes this band so exciting. 